Well, good morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel 23 this morning. And uh, this is a, a passage that talks about the mighty men. I'm going to read uh, 2 Samuel 23, verses 8, and uh, then end at verse 17, actually. But before I read 2 Samuel 23, let us uh, pray for God's word. Lord, we come to you now, and we ask that you would speak through your word. Lord God, we need strength by your spirit to be truly devoted to you in our life. And so we ask that as we see you, Lord Jesus, that you would strengthen us in our following you every day. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So 2 Samuel 23, verses 8 and following says this, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb Bashibeth, a Tak Mennonite, he was chief of the three. He wielded his, his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle and the men of Israel, Israel withdrew. But he rose and he struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herorite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the men fled from the Philistines. But Shammah, he took his stand in the midst of the plot, and he defended it, and he struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. And three of the thirty chief men went down, and they came about harvest time to David at the cave of Ajolam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. And David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines, they were then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then these three mighty men, they broke through the camp of the Philistines and they drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and they brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. And he poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. This is God's word. So in the Bible, the word in the Old Testament, the word hesed, it's kind of hard to say, hesed, it's one of those Old Testament words that can be pretty helpful to know. Uh, in the English Standard Version, which a lot of us use, it's usually translated steadfast love. And this is a great translation. Uh, if you have the New American Standard Bible, it's translated loving kindness. In the King James, it's translated mercy. In the Reina Valera, it's translated misericordia. Um, the late Edmund Clowney, who was a professor at Westminster, he said, you could also rightly translate the word hesed, into the word devotion. Loyalty to the level of devotion. 
And one of the things that we see in the Bible is that the most often times that this word is described, it's described about God, of God's devotion, devotion that God has. But it can also be used for people, for us as well. People can be devoted. If you look at this passage, this is a passage about the devotion, the hesed of these three mighty men to King David and to Israel. If you take devotion to extreme, we might call that fanaticism, right? Can people be fully devoted fanatics to things? Absolutely. I mean, we live in Texas, and it's called the Dallas Cowboys, right? Uh, In the southeast, you call it Alabama football. In New England, we call their fanatics the Patriots, and they're really obnoxious. You know, in in Mexico, it's Chivas or Americas football, no? And we paint our faces and we scream and we yell at the rest when we think that they blow calls. We're devoted fanatics. That's a form of hesed. This passage, it is about devotion. It's about these three mighty men being devoted, even fanatical, to their king. These men have hesed for David. And what we're going to look at is their devotion and consider what kind of devotion that is. Where does it, and where does it come from in our life as well? So first we think about the devotion that these men have to their king. If you look at 2 Samuel 23, it's like uh, this passage, this section, is kind of like one of those Marvel movies where at the end of all of the Marvel movies, there's the credit roll, right? And all the people that are the, the actors and play important parts in the role. And at the end of the credit roll, there's always, always a short scene about something that happened in the movie or something that might happen in the future. Um, well, this is a short scene, like the Marvel movie, looking back at to something, a, a story that happened earlier in the life of David. And this uh, scene is telling a situation that likely happened after Saul was killed by the Philistines, but maybe before David uh, became king. Or else this situation might be one of those scenes where it's early on in the kingship of David. But the story is that David and some of his men, they are in the wilderness, in the stronghold of Adullam. And the Philistines are running around loose in Judah. And they've even occupied, of all places, of all places, they have occupied Bethlehem. Which is David's own hometown. And so look at verse 13 and 14. David, uh, the three mighty men, they went down and they came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. And David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. So David is now at this point where he's trapped in this cave while the Philistines are out in the valley below. And we don't know if there's water in the cave. It's It's a stronghold. So potentially there's a water source nearby, but, but we don't know. Nevertheless, I mean, David is out in the desert and he gets thirsty. Now we live in El Paso, so we know about getting thirsty in the desert. Um, it wasn't until I moved here a few years ago that I learned how thirsty, how quickly you can get thirsty here in the desert. Um, I was going on a short bike ride up to McKilgan Canyon. It was just a little six, eight mile ride up and back and I brought two water bottles, and I thought, that should be enough to drink and, and be fine. And I, I drank my two water bottles on the, ru- on the ride. 
And I got back, and all of a sudden, you know, I started having splotches in my eyes. My, my gut was starting to hurt, and I was so dehydrated because the desert dehydrates you really quickly. And I, I was uh, laid out on the couch, and I laid out on the couch, and I said, oh, if somebody would please bring me some Gatorade. Hint, hint, Matheson, my wife, please bring me some water, some Gatorade. Is that what David is doing here because he's super thirsty in the desert? Well, no, he's not actually making any hints to say, oh, if somebody would just please go to Bethlehem and get it for me. Please, I'm hinting, go get it. He's not doing that. See, though David is thirsty in the desert, he's not hinting, somebody just get me water. He's, he's just, in a sense, wishing out loud. He's saying, it's, if only somebody would come and get me a water, water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. It's merely a wish. It's a wish and a desire also that, that God's people would be back in Bethlehem. But no, by no means is he making a command, somebody go get me water. That's not what he's doing. And yet, we just read about these three mighty men, guys who killed 800 people at one time. And these three mighty men who overheard David, they heard his desire, and they said, your wish is my command. I mean, consider this guy, Josheb, Bashibeth, the Tachmenonite. Besides having an epic name, he killed 800 soldiers from the Philistines at one time. That's incredible. And then there's Eliezer, the son of Dodo. And at another time, the Israelites are in retreat and they're running away. And all of the other Israelite soldiers are running. But Eliezer, he stood his ground and it says he fought and he killed 300 at one time. And he fought and he fought and he fought so much that his hand got so tired from holding a sword that his hand literally cramped around his uh, sword. And when the Israelites came back, all they found was the bodies of the slain. This man was, uh, was incredible. And then there was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herahite. And the Philistines again attack, and the Israelites, they flee. And the picture is incredible because it says that Shammah, he takes his stand in a field of lentils. This is a, a crazy picture. Like, who, who cares about a field of lentils? But he makes his stand in the fields of lentils and he says, these legumes belong to the Lord, you shall not pass. And he kills them. He defended the land from the Lord's enemy. I mean, this is the Lord of the Rings kind of stuff, is it not? I mean, you've got Aragorn and Gimli the dwarf and Legolas the elf slaying the orcs of Mordor. Except this was real. This is real stuff. The point is, these men were utterly devoted to the God of Israel and to King David and the Lord, it says here, he worked a great victory. Because they were devoted, when they heard David's wish, they said, we're going to go. They didn't have to be commanded. They just went. It's a picture of their devotion. And the story then of what they do, it's incredible. It's fantastic. They, they rush into Bethlehem and they break through the Philistine camp and they make it to the well by the gate that is at the very heart of the Philistine defenses. 
And we don't know exactly how they do it, but potentially one of them stands over the, the, the well and he's drawing it up and the other two are on the other, other side, you know, sw- swinging their swords around and stopping all the Philistines and they bring up the water and then they bust back out and they ran 13 miles to get to Bethlehem and then they're carrying water in this bucket or whatever they're carrying it in 13 more miles back. That's an entire marathon that they went to get this water. And they didn't drink it. That's loyalty. That's devotion to the level of fanaticism. You see, the story of these three mighty men, it is meant to inspire us in our devotion to the Lord, to the King. Think about what are some ways that God has called you to be devoted to Him. As you think about it, I know there are things that come into your mind way he's calling you to be devoted to him. But Christian, we have not just overheard a a wish from the Lord. We have overheard Jesus give a direct command from the mountain. Remember when he was, what he said to the 11 disciples on the mountain before he ascended. In Matthew 28, he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus, when He was on the mountain before He ascended, He didn't just say longingly, I wish that there would be disciples from all languages and tongues and nations. It wasn't just a wish. It was a command to His church, to us, to make disciples of all peoples. And de- devotion to, the king, to King Jesus' command, what this means is well bring us into uncomfortable Philistine-held territory for the mission of the gospel. It will be uncomfortable. See, devotion to the king means for us, it means long-term missions. It means moving your family sometimes far away from your family and from your relatives to unreached places like Indonesia or Thailand or to Kazakhstan or even maybe South Dallas. Right? It means that we get over our awkwardness of sharing the gospel with our neighbor that we've known for 10 years. It means being devoted to God's mission rather than devoted to our possessions. It means giving not just of our money, but it also means giving of our time and our talents for this mission that the king has called us to. It's devotion to Jesus, and it entails risk for us. I have a friend who has been a great partner in ministry with me who supported us financially for several years. And one of the things that I appreciate about his devotion is that not only does he give generously to God's mission, but he gets directly involved with it. He's an engineer for a company in, in Indiana, but he uh, has a heart for the lost, and he worked with a guy who was an agnostic, uh, former Catholic guy from Juarez, all the way in Indiana. And this guy, he, my friend, meets with this guy every other week, looking at the book of Mark, exploring who Jesus is. That's devotion to the Lord. And it entails risk. 
Now the three mighty men, they, they risked their lives because of their loyalty to David, to the king, and to his kingdom. And this is why, in some sense, we, what David does next is kind of shocking. So these men, they're exhausted and they're thirsty. And they bring this precious water back to David. And look at verse 16. The three men, they bring it back. But he would not drink of it. And he poured it out. He poured it out to the Lord. David! What are you doing, David? How rude! How inconsiderate of you! Don't you care about what these men just did for you? They risked their lives to bring you this water. Instead, David says in verse 17, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. You see, David, we know he is a humble man. He knows that he's not worthy to drink water that costs as much as these men's blood. He's not worthy. It was too costly for him to drink. And so he pours it out, the costly and precious water, as an offering to the Lord who alone is worthy. You see, David is devoted to the Lord as well. And this act, it shows his devotion to his mighty men. It It shows his devotion to God and to these mighty men as well. And you think about it. What on earth would inspire this fanatical loyalty of these men to David. What is it? It's that they knew that David was devoted to God and to them. See, that's one of the things that we need to understand is that loyalty inspires loyalty. Devotion inspires devotion. But the question that we have to ask ourselves is whose devotion inspires devotion? Whose loyalty inspires loyalty? Is it our loyalty to the Lord? Does does our loyalty to the Lord inspire Him then to be loyal to us? Or is it that His loyalty, His hesed, His steadfast love empowers our loyalty? It's that. And yet, think about it. If you're a PhD student, then you must produce research, get published, and then you will be received into the ranks of doctor. In your jobs, in our jobs, in the world, you have to produce and you have to perform and show your devotion over time. And if you do, in return, you will get retirement, you'll get accepted, hopefully. See, the world tells us produce, perform, and prove your loyalty, and in return, then you will receive loyalty back. This is how the world works. And so we oftentimes think it's the same way in the Christian life. And if we do, if we think this is how the Christian life works, we're going to burn out quickly. Uh, Back in January, Chuck preached at our Presbytery meeting, and when he preached, he brought the fire, I'll tell you what. And when he preached, I remember he said this to all of us room full of pastors. He said, look, you and I, we preach grace. But once you scratch us, We bleed works righteousness. And that is true for us oftentimes. Every one of us, we have a tendency to condition God's devotion to us on the strength of our devotion to Him. But this will not do. 
You see, for you and I to be devoted to King Jesus, you have to know that his, his devotion to you is before your and my devotion to him. That's how you and I will find the power to be devoted to him like these mighty men were devoted to their king. It's knowing the king's devotion to you. And we see it imperfectly in David's life. David inspired devotion from a diverse range of men. If you look at this, most of these men, they came from Judah. But others, they came from across Israel. And some of them were even Gentiles. If you look in the chapter at verse 37 in the end, it says this, Zelek the Ammonite was one. Nahari of Berat, the armor bearer of Joab, the son of Zariah. Ira the Ithrite. Gerab the Ithrite. And the last one you see is Uriah the Hittite. Out. We see he inspired devotion from a wide range of men, and yet this little note at the very end reminds us that David was a fallen, faulty leader. David, remember the story, how he exploited Uriah's loyalty to him, and he sent him back to the battle carrying the letter that had Uriah's own death warrant. You see, this list reminds us that David was a sinner. He was the king who was not always devoted to his people. And he misused it. But in contrast, David's life, it points us to great David's greater son. The scriptures, they direct us to sinful David's sinless son who would come and sit on the throne of David forever. Who am I talking about? We're talking about Christ the king, right? Christ the king? We, should, we know that here. He is the king. King Jesus is the king who is devoted to you and I perfectly. You know, this is the pri- one of the primary truths of the scripture is that God has his steadfast love, his hesed for us. Just read the Psalms. Psalm 117, Psalm 118, Psalm 136. It blasts this truth in a litany over and over again. I'm going to read to you a little bit. It, it says this in Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. His hesed. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt for his steadfast love endures forever. And he brought Israel out from among them for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and outstretched arm for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two for his steadfast love endures forever. And he made Israel pass in the midst of it. For his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host into the Red Sea. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness. Why? For his steadfast love endures forever. This is the scripture You see, the psalm, it goes through a litany recording redemptive history. And line by line, it explains why. Why? Because his hesed, his steadfast love, his loyalty, his devotion, it endures forever. You see, we are redeemed because the great king is devoted to us in spite of the fact 
in spite of the fact that our natural self is weak, afraid, and devoted to so many other things but God. In fact, it's not only that we weren't loyal enough, we were disloyal. So to speak, we were the ones in the Philistine garrison in rebellion to the king. But the gospel is that Jesus himself poured out his blood as an offering for our sins. You see, the new covenant, the litany continues. It continues and it finds its highest expression in what Christ has done. And you remember, two days before Jesus dies, he's in the town of Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. And this woman, this woman comes to him. In Mark 14 it says this, while he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, an ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she poured it out over his head. See, she pours out her essential oils upon Jesus' feet. This costly, costly oil. That's devotion just like these three mighty men. And you know what people are saying around there. They're, they're scolding her, saying, oh, this is a waste. But remember, Jesus is worthy, and so what does he do? He receives the perfume, and it becomes the anointing of his body before his burial. He receives it because he is worthy. And the next day what happens, we remember that he celebrates the supper in the upper room with his disciples. Mark 14, it says he broke the bread, and he, and he took the cup, and he said, this is my body. And then he took the cup, which we're going to take soon. And when he had given thanks, he gave the cup to his men. And he said to them, what did he say? This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. See, when we come to this table, we are reminded that Jesus is the king who is devoted to you. That's what this table is all about. It's the place where Christ communicates to you his hesed, his loyalty. Just like David poured out the water as an offering to God, Jesus himself poured out his blood for many. His blood seals the promise of the king's loyalty and devotion to you. That's the gospel truth that the king is devoted to you and that's what we remember when we come to this table. That's what we remember. In seminary, one of my friends uh, was a pastor in Mombasa, Kenya. And Mombasa uh, is a Muslim-majority part of Kenya. And while in seminary, some pastor in his, in his own hometown were being killed by Muslims and was not safe. Yet he had planned to go back to Mombasa to minister in that context. That's devotion to God's mission. Also at seminary, there was a, a pastor that I knew who was from the house church movement in Beijing, and he was under house arrest for preaching the gospel. And he kept preaching. And he was going to go back to Beijing after seminary and go back to house arrest. That's devotion. See, these are mighty men who in my life has, have inspired me. That's devotion. And yet, we have to remember that even as we're inspired by people's stories like this, 
that the gospel is not the devotion that we do. Brian Chappell tells this story when he had a conversation with a Chinese seminary student who was also involved in the house church movement in China. And this Chinese um, seminary student said this, In my family, the gospel was something you did. You learned the Bible and you behaved like a Christian. That's what it meant to be a Christian. My father was imprisoned by the communists because he was a surgeon who believed in Christ. The soldiers asked him, do you believe in Jesus? And he said, I do. So they said, do you want others to believe in Jesus? And he said, yes, I do. Then they said, if others believe, they will not be loyal to Chairman Mao. And so they put him in prison. They didn't put just him in prison. They put all of his four siblings in prison as well. And this Chinese student said of his father who was in prison, He did what a good Christian should do. His suffering was his identity. It's what made him a Christian. Not him only, but his siblings too. He said, "I, I admired them. I respected what they did. But as I looked at their children, my seven cousins, only I was a believer today. Brian Chappell asked him, what happened? The Chinese pastor said, Well, I struggled, too, to be a Christian, being raised at a home where the gospel was something you did. He decided that he needed to suffer, too, this seminary student. So he quit his career as a computer engineer, and he went to seminary in the U.S. to prepare to suffer as a pastor back in the Chinese house church. And he said when he went to seminary, the gospel was still something that you do. So I studied hard, and I made good grades, and I hated church, and I fought with my wife. As a computer engineer, I perceived that the gospel was about getting the right performance out of my operating system. I had the right information, and I even believed in God. But I was empty, miserable, and terrified that I could not live up to the expectation of those expecting me to return. So one morning, he said he was heading off to seminary class, after he had had a fight with his wife, and the fight fight had gotten physical. At the base of the stairs, he was going away from his apartment. He collapsed on the ground, and he said, I cried out to God, please, God, I need you to change my heart. The only way I knew to explain what what I was asking for was as a computer engineer. I was trying to be a Christian by getting the right documents and the right performance out of me. Finally, I said, God, I needed you to change my operating system. I asked Jesus that he would give me the peace that he would love me despite my performance. You see, if you and I think that the gospel is about something that we do, it's about the devotion that we do, we're not going to continue in it. You see, the heart of our faith is not perform like these mighty men. It's not sacrifice and pour out your offering to God to prove your devotion. The gospel is that Christ himself poured out his blood for you, for my sins. That he is fully devoted to you and to me and he loves us despite our performance. And he has given us the Holy Spirit who pours out that very love into our hearts. 
And when we have that love poured into our hearts, the love of His devotion to us, there we will find the power and the strength to be devoted to Christ no matter what comes our way. The psalmist says this, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And it is by the blood that has been poured out for us that we know His steadfast love is forever. And so like the mighty men of Israel, we respond, The Lord is on my side as my helper. The Lord is on my side. What can man do to me? And I shall look in triumph upon my enemies. Let's pray. Lord God, we desire to be devoted to you, and yet we recognize that So much in this world depends upon our performance. Lord, as we come to this table, would you pour it into our hearts the confidence and the assurance that by your blood, Lord Jesus, you are absolutely devoted. You are steadfast in your loyalty to us. In Jesus' name we pray.